This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. This morning would be terrific. It would be terrific for you to have that text open in front of you because um, I'm sure that you want to know what it actually says and I'm sure that you want to hear what I've got to say about it. Um, we've been doing a series on 1 Corinthians. I haven't just chosen difficult, random passages to make my life really complicated. Um, last year we did a series on 1 Corinthians, a letter that Paul sent to the churches, uh, to a church in Corinth, which was dealing with uh, a messy situation, the messiness of human life, what it was lived, like to live out the gospel of grace in the mess of human experience. And we heard all sorts of things about their experiences, a really odd bunch of people, a real, inter- really interesting collection of people. And so we're restarting that series. And now from 1 Corinthians 11 through till about 1 Corinthians 14, Paul will be addressing what do Christians do when they meet together to reflect the unity that they have in Christ. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we understand. We seek to understand him. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are at war. And it is as ladies and gentlemen that we are at war. There is perhaps no more painful sight of human division than that between the genders. I'm aware that even as I open my mouth today... I feel like I'm handling several kilos of plastic explosive. Our gender, how we express our biological sex in cultural space, is something that's deeply personal to each of us. It's not only about how I express myself, but how I'm received and understood and appreciated and respected by others or not, according to what is accepted culturally about men and women. It's not just about me, It's about me in relation to you and you in relation to me. Now, this tension that we experience is a pretty normal human experience, but it has been made particularly sharp since the sexual revolution of the 1960s and the rise of feminism. Simultaneously, we had a push for sexual and personal freedom and also a protest against people, particularly men, using that freedom to subjugate and exploit others especially women. Just in the last couple of years, we've seen the hashtag MeToo movement galvanise, give voice to the pain of millions of women, the, the negative experiences of millions of women against what is often called toxic masculinity, even in supposedly progressive communities like the film industry or the media. And we've also seen the rising awareness of domestic, domestic violence with a woman per week being killed by her partner in our country. Then there's the question of what it is to be a modern man. Does anybody know anymore? When Gillette put out their ad last year questioning contemporary masculine ideals, is this the best a man can be? There was an uproar. Now, just to be clear, I'm not blaming feminism at all for the problem. But to make a very broad, sweeping generalisation... We in the West have moved from a culture with very fixed expectations about what it means to be a member of either gender, 
to express your sex through gender in particular ways, to a culture where that question is constantly being negotiated, where that is constantly open to question. And that's by no means a bad thing. A freedom has been given to us in it, but it doesn't make it easy. Add to that the suggestion that gender is fluid, and, well, it's extremely complex, isn't it? And I'm aware this morning that this reality might affect you, might have affected you personally at a very deep level. We're very good, aren't we, at shaming each other in this part, this aspect of our humanity. No wonder we sometimes imagine how much easier a world without the other gender would be. They put one man on the moon, why can't they put them all there, we might say. Or as Gloria Steinem, the feminist uh, from the 1970s, once said, quoting an Australian, in fact, Irina Dunn, she said, a woman needs a man like, like a hole in the head, thank you, like a fish needs a bicycle, right? Or as I've heard men say, women can't live with them. No, just can't live with them. And so today, I mean, it's a, it, there's, there's something humorous in it, but there's something that very serious revealed by the comments. And so today we're going to turn to the Apostle Paul for guidance. What, I hear you say? Him? That old misogynist of all people? What could he possibly tell us from two millennia ago that we would listen to, that we modern people would see, would find worthwhile? And at this point... I need to ask you to put aside some perhaps of your preconceived notions and give Paul a listen. Why? Well, I think, first of all, he's more contemporary than we think. As we've seen through the book of 1 Corinthians, the, the Greco-Roman world was much more like ours than we think. It was a cosmopolitan world, a melting pot of different cultures and different religions and different cultural expressions, and that included, of course, gender. The question of how to express gender was a tense one for his society as well. There were independent, educated and wealthy Greco-Roman women who were challenging male dominance. Corinth, the city to whom he was writing, to which he was writing, veered between sexual license, it was the home to an extraordinary amount of prostitutes of both sexes, often attached to, to pagan temples, and outraged Puritanism, which went alongside it. So he's a more contemporary commentator than we might imagine. But second, Paul is the apostle of Jesus Christ who preaches the life-giving gospel that never gets old. He is the apostle of the risen Lord whose resurrection we've just celebrated. So as a Christian, I'm obliged to listen to him even when it's difficult to understand him. Even the Apostle Peter says in his second letter that Paul is difficult to understand, so it's good to know that even the Bible thinks Paul is difficult to understand. But a wise friend once said to me that when he felt that he disagreed with the Bible, it usually meant that he hadn't yet understood it and that he needed to pick away harder and harder at work, making it, making it work, at understanding it. Today's passage is not easy. It is tricky to understand. There's grammatical and translational things about it that make it difficult. But one of the hardest things about it is that Paul is trying to help us to express eternal truths which never change 
through the lens of a culture which is constantly changing. And I don't have time this morning to explain it all. I'm not about to give you a comprehensive account of this passage, nor do I, do I in fact understand everything about it. I'll give it my best go. I've got an idea of what the little reference to the angels might mean, but I'm not quite sure. But I'd love to this to be an open rather than a closed conversation. I'd love you to feel that you could walk away from here and contact me, keep talking about it, ask me further questions, or maybe make points that I need to listen to. I'd be very happy for that to be the case. So please, let's talk about it, especially if something today really annoys you. I think Paul is, in fact, inviting us to do that when he says towards the end of the passage, judge for yourselves. Have a conversation about it in your context. Work out how it's going to work for you here and now. But before we get stuck on the details, we need to step back and get the bigger picture. In 1 Corinthians, you might remember, Paul is trying to guide a congregation of Christians to be transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. He's trying to show them and convince them how they should be different. And his vision is for a community, not of the perfect, but of the reconciled. Oh, there were all kinds of people in this community. There were people who had been sex workers. There were people who had been slaves. There were people who had been thieves and drunks. There were people who were wealthy. There were people who were not. There were men and there were women. That community now needs to live out the message that brought them together. They're a body with many diverse parts. But despite all their differences, they've been united by Jesus Christ. They know that Jesus died for them, died for them equally, no matter who they were, slaves and masters, Jews, Greeks and barbarians, foreigners, men and women. And their mission is to find harmony with one another. Not monotony, that everyone marches to the same drum, everyone is exactly the same. Not in cacophony. Certainly chaos is not what we find, what we want to find in a Christian church, but in harmony. But Paul's realistic about this harmony. He, he says it's going to take work. It's not an instant and automatic thing. It's based on a unity you already have, but you have to find the harmony. And so in chapters 11 through 14, he's going to say that how we meet together in church should be a reflection of who we are in Jesus Christ and the God who we worship. Because he's going to tell us in a couple of chapters' time, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. I find that's an interesting contrast, isn't it? It's not, he's not a God of disorder, but of order. He's a God of peace. Peace is an organic, flourishing kind of idea. It's the word shalom from the Old Testament. God is not a God of, of dark chaos, but neither is he a God of regimented order. He's the God of sweet peace. We need to find that sweet spot. We should begin by reminding each other of how radically egalitarian the gospel of Jesus Christ is, especially, but not exclusively, over the issue of gender. Christianity was extremely popular with women in the first century, as American historian Rodney Stark has pointed out in his fantastic book, The Rise of Christianity. When women looked at the church in the first century, they saw something that was 
more inclusive of them and safer for them as women. Women are more prominent in the ministry of Jesus than you would expect them to be given the culture. And they are standouts in the early church. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians 11 clearly expects that women are going to be speaking from the front, as it were, publicly in the Christian meeting. This was a gender-inclusive worship unheard of anywhere else. I mean, we just have to think about what the other models of worship were, religious worship going around. You had the pagans. You might have gone to a pagan temple, perhaps the the temple of Bacchus, to go and see uh, the worship of the god of wine. And, And really, you would have thought you'd stumbled into a King's Cross strip club. There were women there, but the women were being paraded as figures of erotic desire. The worship of Bacchus, the god of wine, involved drunken and frenzied orgies. The worship of the other gods involved temple prostitution. You went to worship and you slept with a prostitute as part of your worship. On the other hand, you had the worship of the synagogue and the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, in which there was a highly ordered separation. Gentiles were separated from Jews. Men were separated from women. They did not sit together at prayer. A little bit like the mosque, where men and women are separated. But what was Christian worship to look like? Well, it's not a drunken orgy, in which women in particular were paraded as sexualized beings. But women are not excluded and silenced and separated either. The solution was not putting everyone in Hessian bags, nor separating them. Women were to participate in the Christian worship, in Christian worship, the Christian gathering, as women. Now, we don't know what was happening exactly in the background in Corinth that Paul has to say what the things he's saying here. Possibly with their newfound freedom in Christ and their background in other various parts of Corinth with all its wildness, certain women were coming to Christian worship and flaunting it, literally letting their hair down, which was a sign at the time of sexual availability. Or possibly some of the men or older women, as they do, as we do, were trying to crack down and suppress women's involvement. So Paul's got a couple of things to get straight here. The first is based on this word from verse 3 in chapter 11. Now, I've translated it a little bit differently because the word for man can mean husband or the word for husband can mean man and wife can mean woman as well. It's not quite clear which one he means. And also the word man can actually mean humanity as it does with us as, as well. So there's some slight imprecisions in, these, uh, in this verse. I want you to understand, he says, that Christ is the head of every man and man is the head of every of woman and God is the head of Christ. What could this jarring sentence mean? The word head is the word that stands out to us, isn't it? It's a word, however, here, which means the relationship between two parties, saying that they are deeply, organically connected. But the point isn't that one orders the other about or about who's in charge of whom. From the words that follow, what Paul's trying to say here is, how do we go about honouring our head? That's his concern. How do you honour and not shame the one you're related to, the one that you're joined to in this way? Just as humankind honours Christ 
and Christ honours God. So women in their newly found positions of prominence are not to bring shame or disgrace to the church community by being culturally inappropriate. Rather, in fact, they are to bring honour to the community by their presence and by their behaviour. And then Paul explains how that's going to work in terms of the social conventions of his day which is the little bit he's got there about whether a woman has her head covered or whether it has, she has it shaved. You'll notice that he's talking about social conventions because you'll see in verse 6 he says, For if a woman will not fail herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, you notice that word if, he's recognising that there will be different conventions in different places and that he doesn't really know exactly what the practice is in Corinth at the time. If one is disgraceful, then don't do that. Do that which brings honour rather than that which brings disgrace. Now, before we jump down Paul's throat and say, oh, how retrograde all that is, we, of course, have our own social conventions today. Please, wear your budgie smugglers or your bikini at the beach, but don't wear it at the restaurant. I will complain And no one would complain if I told you that church isn't the place for either, right? In Corinth, men were to uncover their heads and women were to cover theirs, either by veil or by braiding their hair. If they were to have their heads shaved, that would be a sign that they were part of the sex industry. That would be a a, a disgraceful sign, in other words. Notice in verse, uh, we already mentioned the the fact in verse 6 that he's seeing that social conventions differ in different places. Even up till recently, women wore hats to church, and I think the Queen probably still does. And men took theirs off, and yet the only person wearing a hat here in church today is a man. Things have changed. The cultural convention has changed. The meaning when women wore hats and men did not, when men took theirs off, was the same but the expression was different. There were, as now, different conventions for men and women. These were expressions of culture, but we're not surprised by them. They are different ways of reflecting the same fundamental truth, that males and females have different experiences of living in bodies that God has made, but that each ought to be honoured and respected. The challenge for us today is to negotiate what those signs mean with a view to the respect and honour of the community and of one another. We don't have a dress code on the door which gives you strict guidelines of what women should wear and men should wear in church. Our attitude should be what governs us. Our community conversation should be what transforms and changes us, what helps us to negotiate what Paul is trying to say. But here's Paul's point to all of us. How we express ourselves, especially as we worship, is not to bring shame on others in the community and not on Christ, but rather is to honour them and to honour Christ. It's not about the length of our hair so much as how we approach one another and what we do as we dress to be with one another. Now, the second point he wants to make is that the difference between male and female is important, but that that difference is about mutual interdependence, not separation. Pardon me. Not for Paul, the comment about fish and bicycles. 
He may sound to us in verses 8 and 9 a little lopsided, but he's reminding us of the Genesis story. The Genesis story when Adam was made and then Eve was made from his rib, showing that they both belong to the same flesh, showing that just as woman, a man comes from woman, so also woman comes from man. They belong together, uh, is what he's quoting there. But then in verse 11 and 12, he lands the punchline of his thought when he says, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman. But all things, both of them, come from God. As human beings, we are not created in the image of God individually. God created man in his image, male and female, he created them in his image. We together and collectively represent God. We collectively are the Im- in the image of God. Woman is not subordinate to man, nor is man independent of woman. We are made from the same stuff and have in God the same creator. We are called then not to live in independent communities from one another, but to serve one another, including between the sexes. And this is not just as married people, by the way, all of us are part of a gendered humanity given to one another. Now, what might that look like in 21st century Australia? I've got some things to say here, but I hope it's the beginning of an extended conversation. But firstly, I've heard complaints from both sexes about church. Men think that church is too feminised. Women think it's dominated by men. Paul's vision, remember, is for us to live out God's extraordinary peace in a transformed community, a community of grace, not a community of people who are the same, but a people who are different but united. And that includes our sex differences. Oh, you know, sometimes, don't you think, wouldn't it be easier if church was just all women or church was just all men? And then you think, actually, it would be easier if it was just men over 40. And, and then you'd have a church over there for men under 40 and then women under 40. And, we, and then actually just, uh, I'd prefer Anglo-Saxon men who went to private schools who, you know, that's not the Christian church, is it? We're called into a community of difference and to actually negotiate and live out harmony with that difference. That's our calling. That's who we are. That's our constitution because of Jesus Christ. And so we've got to do that. Well, what will that mean? The key thing to have in mind in everything is do I build up others? Do I build up this community with how I present myself in the, in the church community, whether that's through my gender or through whatever? Do I encourage them and honour them? So men... Now, I don't stand before you as some virtue-signalling, self-righteous beacon of equality here. But why is it that so many women have complained that church is not a safe and welcoming and honouring place for them? Why is it that when the hashtag MeToo thing went round last year, there was also a hashtag, hashtag church too meme, with women testifying to the way they'd been mistreated in church communities? Why have women been overlooked, dismissed, 
ignored, patronised, belittled, shamed and blamed in churches? Why do so many intelligent women find church impossible even to contemplate? Why have we found it acceptable to overlook domestic abuse in churches? Because we tend to believe a man's word over a woman's. What are you personally doing as a man to honour and respect your sisters in Christ as full members with you in Christ's body? Now, many of the social conventions of a generation ago, much derided now, were based around men making respectful space for women. They represented something profoundly Christian, in fact, which was that those in power, those who have a social advantage, as men most often do and still do today, however egalitarian we are, those in power respect and make space for and stand back for those with less power. What do we do today to express that respect and honour symbolically and really in our community? How are we models of that? Women, well, in a sense, I want to leave it up to you to have your own conversations with each other, with each other here. What does it look like to live out Paul's principles today as women? But if men are complaining that church feels alien to them, it's worth asking, what have we done to make it feel that way? But here's the surprise. Far from being part of the problem in the first place, Paul paints for us a different vision of peace between the sexes. We, the church, reconciled in God to God in Jesus Christ, have a chance to be transformed and transformative, a different kind of community in which male and female are both recognised as different and yet mutually honoured in their different ways. Not shamed or despised, but honoured. It's going to take real work for us to make this a reality. It's going to take deliberate effort. We will need to lay aside so many fears and hurts. We need to listen more than to speak, particularly men, since we take up more airtime very often. We need patience and forgiveness and respect. But wouldn't it be extraordinary? Wouldn't it be honouring to our Lord Jesus Christ and an extraordinary witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ if people could say of us here at St Mark's, you know, that's a place where they know how to do male and female really well. Where as a woman I feel respected and honoured. Where as a man I feel respected and honoured. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.